And now, America's number one show on pop culture and politics. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A, a great day while foreign crises continue to engage the attention of the United States of America. It's a problematic moment, however, because one of the things that has come out, at least as reported by the New York Times, is that the former budget director for President Trump, his name is Russell Vaught, has uh, produced a draft budget that Republicans are thinking of getting behind. It calls for a 45% reduction over the next 10 years, and each of those years in our foreign aid budget and radical reductions in uh, in various expenditures for social programs here in the United States, uh, including uh, food stamps and a work requirement for food stamps, which, by the way, would be a very popular idea and maybe a very constructive one. Uh, but while all of that is going on, the Republicans in the House of Representatives seem to be spending a great deal of time uh, conducting committee hearings about uh, oh Twitter, uh, about uh, the uh, alleged weaponization of American federal agencies. Uh, that, uh, by the way, there would also be very, in this Republican draft budget, very severe, maybe 50% or more reductions in expenditures for counterterrorism, which I'm not sure is a healthy thing to do at this time. But one of the things that was definitely not healthy to do uh, when it was done was the abrupt and clumsy and very badly handled uh, departure from Afghanistan after having invested blood and treasure and commitment to try to give that nation some kind of hope America very abruptly and with virtually no conditions just left and uh, today there was a hearing by the Senate by the House Foreign Affairs Committee under the chairmanship of the excellent Mike McCall and uh, they had a testimony from a Marine sergeant, a sniper, whose name is uh, Tyler Vargas Andrews. And uh, Sergeant Vargas Andrews testified to being forced to witness the Taliban execute women and families in front of his sniper team. He was not allowed to intervene. In fact, his men had to walk rejected Afghans back to the Taliban. This is uh, being stationed at the airport where they were tortured and executed. He also testified that Afghans committed suicide by throwing themselves on razor wire rather than be tortured by the Taliban. And he said the Taliban are not professionals. They are only professionals at killing innocent people. He uh, spoke about the, uh, the suicide bomber who killed those 13 American troops in Kabul airport and uh, his testimony sounded like this this is I requested engagement authority while my team leader was ready on the M110 semi-automatic sniper system the response leadership did not have the engagement authority for us do not engage I requested for the battalion commander lieutenant colonel Brad Whited to come to the tower to see what we did while we waited for him psychological operations individuals came to our tower immediately and confirmed the suspect met the suicide bomber description 
He eventually arrived and we showed him our evidence, the photos we had of the two men. We reassured him of the ease of fire on the suicide bomber. Pointedly, we asked him for engagement authority and permission. We asked him if we could shoot. Our battalion commander said, and I quote, I don't know, end quote. Myself and my team leader asked very harshly, well, who does? Because this is your responsibility, sir. He again replied, he did not know, but would find out. We received no update and never got our answer. Eventually, the individual disappeared. To this day, we believe he was a suicide bomber. We made everyone on the ground aware. Operations had briefly halted, but then started again. Plain and simple, we were ignored. Our expertise was disregarded. No one was held accountable for our safety. And uh, then he described the moment that the suicide bomb ultimately went off. About 1730, Staff Sergeant Darren Hoover, friend and mentor. came to get me from the tower to go help find an Afghan interpreter in the crowd. We found the interpreter and his brother born with American passports. They told us, five, told us of five family members still in the canal. I stayed there waiting for the family members standing against a two-foot canal wall. Ten minutes passed. <clears throat> then a flash <clears throat> and a massive wave of pressure I'm thrown 12 feet onto the ground, but instantly knew what had happened. I opened my eyes to Marines dead or unconscious lying around me. And uh, then he spoke of putting the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, the darkest moment of the Biden administration so far. He uh, described what that withdrawal really meant. Uh, clip C. The withdrawal, <clears throat> the withdrawal was a catastrophe in my opinion, and there was an ex inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. The 11 Marines, one sailor, <clears throat> and one soldier that were murdered that day have not been answered for. And uh, the idea that uh, this um, hearing is going on now it seems to me uh, one of the more important hearings that uh, the Republicans are actually engaged in just to try to help make sure that the American people understand what a disaster this was and uh, how important it is that similar mistakes uh, not be repeated uh, or, or followed uh, in the future. Uh, there's um, another question about uh, the America's future and our foreign policy. Uh, there is a, a story from the Telegraph in Great Britain that uh, actually makes it clear that um, uh, the Russian government wants you to believe that uh, there's a new explosion of love for Vladimir Putin. Where? Right here in America. Uh, the, uh, according to a columnist for a state-owned television uh, in Russia, RIA Novosti News Agency, they published an article by its top columnist, Victoria Nikoforova. Last March, the European Union sanctioned Nikoforova as a central figure in Russian government propaganda, she has denied Ukraine's right to exist as well as the ability of the Ukrainian people to decide for itself, the EU said in a statement. Headlined, Americans now want Putin to become their president. 
<laughs> is that true? And Likaforova's RIA Novosti piece alleged that support for Vladimir Putin among Americans has skyrocketed. The explosion of American love for the Russian president was provoked paradoxically, she writes, by his extremely tough stance toward Russia's enemies. Nikiforova based her analysis on a single publication in the American Thinker, a U.S. conservative outlet, the content of which she also mistranslated. In fact, the proportion of Americans supporting the Russian president has been steadily declining for two decades, according to numerous public opinion polls. The most recent survey by the Pew Research Center, a Washington-based think tank, showed a 20-year low for Putin. Across 18 nations, a median of 90% say they do not have confidence in Putin to do the right thing in world affairs, and nearly 8 in 10 express no confidence at all in Putin. Surprised that you still have people who are in doubt, but there is no doubt or there should be no doubt about what is going on right now in Israel, uh, which uh, we will clarify uh, direct from Jerusalem. Uh, we'll be speaking with my brother, Jonathan Medved of Our Crowd, an uh, international company based in Jerusalem. We'll be right back on The Medved Show. The Michael Medved Show. Michael Medved show. There are lots of people who ask me all the time, what the heck is going on in Israel? They've had huge demonstrations. One demonstration a couple of days ago was supposed to be 160,000 people. Uh, today, they say there are thousands of demonstrators, some of them in a convoy of tractors, uh, disrupting traffic in several cities, and others sailed a flotilla of boats through a maritime shipping lane. What is this conflict about, uh, and is this really directly related to the violence that has gotten so lavishly reported in the United States concerning uh, the West Bank and concerning what uh, uh, people on the left refer to as the occupied territories? No, there's no better perspective on this than the perspective right there on the ground in Jerusalem in the thick of Israeli uh, politics and business life. And that's my brother Jonathan, who's lived in Israel for <laughs> many, many years, going on four decades. And uh, uh, Jonathan has uh, a company called Our Crowd, which people can find out about by going to our website at michaelmedved.com. Is Israel really, as the New York Times said this morning, on the brink of civil war? No. I'll give you an absolute definitive no to that, that one. That's an easy question to answer. Look, uh, Israel is a spirited, democratic, hyper-democratic country where people are deeply invested in the country, in their ideologies, in their parties. I mean, we love elections so much that we had five of them <laughs> over three years. Okay, and on the fifth one, we actually had the highest turnout, which was like over 70%. So people vote, they shout, they demonstrate. Um, 
they express themselves. Israelis are not shy. Okay, they are sort of a boisterous bunch. We've been that way, I think, from the beginning. You know, in the Bible, it calls us a stiff-necked people, and we like to argue a lot. And, you know, you, you describe three Israelis, and they might have four synagogues, five newspapers, and six political parties, because you need two to hop back and forth to. But th- the reality is that there is a very, I don't want to make light of the situation, it's a very serious situation going on in the country now, where there is an attempt to promote a either upheaval or reform, depending upon which side of the uh, question you are, relative to Israel's judicial system. Israel has a very, very well-respected international uh, uh, Supreme Court that has been very muscular, very activist, very uh, much involved in striking down laws. And the problem is that Israel doesn't have a constitution, so the court really has, has grown huge muscles. And the new government wanted to uh, stretch its muscles and so came up with a plan which, according to the opponents of this plan, would destroy Israel's democracy by clipping the wings of the Supreme Court. And hence, these protests have have grown week by week, and now they're at the point of of massive civil disobedience, where they are blocking uh, ministers into their homes. Today, the prime minister of Israel had to fly to meet the Italian prime minister in order to get to the airport was forced to use a helicopter because they had blocked all the (laughs) entrances to the airport. Now, the opposition uh, happens to be the, the, uh, you know, very strong in this country because there was a very tight election. All of those five elections were very close, right? I mean, yeah, look, we're, we're, we're evenly divided pretty much, you know, uh, in the country. And the biggest issue is not right or not left, not war and not peace, not economics. The biggest issue is Bibi, our prime minister. You're either for him or you're against him, and, and people have very strong views on this. But this issue of the judicial reform or the judicial upheaval has really split the country yet even deeper and has struck a resonant tone in a lot of the elites in the country both in the army, in the, in the judiciary, among economics and academics, and most interesting, in my own community of the high-tech, what we call the high-tech Eastim, the people who are you know, really providing the muscle and the firepower for Israel's incredible economy. And they just said, no, we don't, we don't want you to mess with the court. It's going too fast. Stop this. And so there has been this huge protest movement, which is... Uh, rather surprising in its strength. It has really, you know, affected everything here. It has become the only issue people talk about all day long. And what's most uh, surprising and and scary a little bit is in the last couple of days it has spread into the army. And Israel, of course, has a citizen's army, which, uh, you know, completely depends on people showing up to do their reserve duty, especially in special units like the Air Force. And there are now all kinds of discussions and reports of significant chunks of the army that are saying, we're going on strike. And this is... Uh, That's until they withdraw this this program of judicial reform. That's correct. Okay, That's correct. let me stop you there for a moment, because there are 
probably a lot of people who heard what you said, which is that Israel doesn't have a constitution. And I, I should explain that neither does Great Britain. Great Britain doesn't have That's a constitution, true. but they somehow managed to get by because it's all based on what they call common law. In other words, it's based yes. on previous court decisions. That's what the Israeli Supreme Court relies upon, right? I mean, one of the arguments has been that the activist Israeli Supreme Court has promulgated a doctrine called reasonability, meaning that if there is no common law precedent one way or the other, the court can then use the reasonableness doctrine to decide whether a law makes sense or not. And that's one of the things they would like to you know, change uh, by the current government. And, you know, the current government wants to change the way that they select judges. They want to change the ability to overturn judicial review. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just complicated. Israel is a young democracy, right? We're getting ready to have our 75th birthday. And uh, we don't have the history of England with their common law we don't have the beauty of the United States Constitution, which the more you get into these things, you should just thank God that you have that incredible uh, instrument. Um, and, and we're now engaged in a pretty wild debate in the country, you know, about uh, legal matters and the power of the Supreme Court. And on the one hand, it's depressing to see people really getting as upset as they are on both sides. But on the other hand, there's a part of me which is extremely proud that we are a vibrant democracy where people can protest, where people do protest, and some of them are incredibly creative, if not you know, going a little bit over the line. For example, some veterans took uh, tanks from the, this 73 Yom Kippur War that were in memorials and put signs on them for the protest and dragged them in to the protest. That's going too far, in my opinion. Okay, but we, we want to go a little bit further into what is going on on the West Bank. People are saying that this is going to be a new intifada. I, I'm also skeptical about that. And then what about a compromise solution or, dare I even say it, a new election, a sixth election in the last couple of years. We will get to that and more with Jonathan Medved here on The Michael Medved Show. What if you could cut your heating bills this winter with your existing... And on The Michael Medved Show, it is a pleasure to uh, speak with my brother, Always. Uh, we, we actually had the chance to speak last night. We do uh, a regular brother's call with our other two brothers as well. And I'm kind of proud of that. It's one of the highlights of my weeks. Uh, and Jonathan uh, is uh, just finished a uh, terrific investor's summit for his company, Our Crowd, with 9,000 people representing 81 different nations. Is that right, John? That's correct. Spot on, Michael. In, in, including a bunch of a, Arab uh, nations that were part yes. of your investors' summit and uh, that were very impressed by what they saw about the Israeli economy and the opportunities there to actually do something that really is the, the core of solving everything, which is making money. 
and uh, actually trying to create wealth and to raise standards of living, et cetera, et cetera. With all of that going on, uh, before we get to the question about what's going on in the West Bank and Judea and Samaria, uh, in terms of the possibilities of compromise between the opposition and the new Netanyahu government, which is more likely, that they work out some compromise to settle this matter of the Supreme Court or that they go to yet another election? No, I think it's most likely that we'll have a compromise. I'm, I'm hoping so. And I, if I had to bet money, I would bet money on the compromise. Um, at our investor conference, we opened it with the president of Israel, uh, Isaac Herzog, who's an extraordinary guy, uh, quite an impressive guy, who has been basically calling for the two sides to remember what we have in common, to come together, to compromise, to figure this out. And uh, he's rumored to be close to bringing the parties together. And I do hope that that will happen, because let's face it, there are, there are arguments on both sides. For example, the soldiers who are uh, protesting so vociferously to the point of, of refusing to serve, which is, you know, really hits a deep nerve in the Israeli psyche, they're afraid that without the you know, world-recognized independence of the Israeli Supreme Court, they will be liable to be brought up on, you know, trumped-up ridiculous charges at The Hague, at the International Criminal Court. And so they have actually not just an ideological but a real personal issue on the line, which is that they are protected by Israel's strong Supreme Court from international prosecution, God forbid. And that's a big issue. You know, on the other hand, you know, there are all kinds of things that need to be done. And I hope that someday we are able to actually either write a constitution or continue with the development of what we call basic laws to create our own common law system. But the one thing everybody agrees on is that Israel is a democracy and that the people who are protesting are afraid that it's going to be curtailed in a certain way. The people who are trying to legislate new rules, want to fix it in their uh, image, and uh, through democratic processes like elections and also like demonstrations, which are part of democracy as well, I think we'll find a way to to reach the common ground. Okay, meanwhile, what is going on in uh, the Palestinian territories? Uh, The uh, uh, obviously... uh, People are concerned when they hear that the Palestinian Authority isn't going to cooperate anymore with security and cutting down on terrorism. We hear almost every day about some new gun battle, uh, often in the city of Jenin or sometimes in Huwara now, which became a famous city because there was a, a murders there. And there's a new Palestinian terror organization called the Lion's Den. What's going on? Well, look, it's it's never completely quiet here. That's number one. And number two, over the last several months, um, violence between Israelis and Palestinians has gone up. There has been more terror attacks. Most of them are happening in the territories, but there are also terror attacks that happen. Um, this The country feels safe, is safe, and people are going about their 
day to day. There is no real intifada the way that there was in the past, but that uh, this is a, a growing concern, and Israeli uh, forces are almost active nightly in terms of prevent trying to prevent terrorist attacks and not always doing so. Now, this is um, affected by the change in policy by the new government. The new government is more to the right than prior governments have been and uh, is endorsing and supporting uh, settlements in the the territories in Judea and Samaria, um, what some people refer to as the West Bank. And this is, you know, causing yet more stress. And I think that there are some issues with some of the new leaders in Israel who need to realize that they're no longer, you know, leading protests or demonstrations or making wild statements, but are now responsible for a government. And in particular, the the most amazing thing is that Israel has made enormous progress in terms of its regional acceptance through the Abraham Accords, which have turned out to be not just durable, but incredibly important, both uh, strategically, economically, culturally, psychologically, where Israel is accepted now by probably the majority of countries in the region as part of the region. To let that go and to, you know, not seek to make sure that we do everything possible to reduce tension and to reduce bloodshed, okay, and not that we're not doing it, but that unfortunately, you know, we don't have a lot of partners on the other side who are, you know, wanting to sing Kumbaya with us. And we've just got to be smart about how we manage this conflict, because this conflict doesn't provide an easy resolution, but I do believe it can be managed and can be kept on a, God forbid, a low burn, okay, uh, or, you know, just not uh, as, 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 as dangerous as it sometimes seems. And, of course, the papers and the, the uh, overall international uh, media just, you know, loves well, to talk about this all the time. Stories, stories of conflict and gun battles are always uh, good for getting eyeballs. Speaking of stories of gun battles, there's a Bloomberg headline today. Uh, you know what the headline says, John? It says, uh, what happens if Israel attacks Iran? Can you give us a brief answer to that question? <laughs> We're touching all bases today. This is lots of fun, Michael. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, Israel attacking Iran is not necessarily lots of fun. What's going on? No, no. I mean, look... Um, we need to make sure that the Iranians don't have a nuclear weapon. And they're obviously, based on all the reports, seem to be increasingly close to this. And this is an issue which, unlike the prior issue, is one of existential threat to Israel's existence. And I think that uh, every government in Israel has made it clear that we will not allow them to get nuclear weapons. And there might be you know, on the horizon, a decision point where uh, the government is going to need to make a decision about how to make sure that that commitment to prevent their acquisition of weapons is actually kept as a promise. And I think that, thank God, we are allied with the United States, and uh, that alliance has never been stronger. And uh, there's all kinds of joint 
exercises and planning. And of course, Secretary of Defense Austin was here today. And I hope that our two great countries will figure this one out. Uh, let us hope so, hope so and pray for it. Uh, Jonathan Medved, you can read about his work at our website. Go to michaelmedved.com, look for the banner for Our Crowd, and see some of the extraordinarily positive news about Israel and Israeli high tech. We'll be right back. Sign up today for our free weekly newsletter at michaelmedved.com. On the Michael Medved show, uh, there is, of course, conflict and controversy all over the world. There's also a a new piece, a new report in the Daily Telegraph in uh, Britain that uh, they are expecting some kind of either terror or even missile attack on the United Kingdom from Iran. And uh, they report in the the Telegraph, with world attention understandably focused on the Ukraine crisis, we should not be surprised that rogue nations should be seeking to exploit the conflict in order to advance their own nefarious agendas. For most of the past decade, British security officials, when asked to rank hostile states that threaten our national well-being, have put Russia at number one, with China coming in second. Other threats, such as those posed by Iran and North Korea, as well as the continuing challenge presented by militant Islamist groups, have been deemed less immediate while still worthy of close monitoring. The suggestion, therefore, is uh, that the Islamic Republic of Iran is now regarded as posing the second most potent threat to Britain in security circles shows just how much progress the Ayatollahs have made in developing their military strength while the rest of the world has been distracted by the tragic events unfolding in Ukraine. Western security officials have been obliged to revise their assessment of the Iranian threat following the alarming revelation by nuclear inspectors that uranium particles enriched to 83.7% purity have been discovered at Iran's Fordo plant, uh, constructed deep beneath the mountains so that it cannot be targeted by Western airstrikes. Uh, Western airstrikes, the, apparently the Israeli high command has actually looked particularly at the Fordo plant. Another fiction that Tehran has tried to maintain over the past few decades or so is that it has no interest in developing nuclear weapons and that all its nuclear activities are for peaceful objectives such as providing alternative energy sources. If that is the case, why have inspectors working for the UN-sponsored International Atomic Energy Agency found traces of uranium at Fordo that are just short of the 90% enrichment level required to make uh, nuclear weapons? Uh, There is this, uh, and this from John Kirby, who was uh, in Ukraine, and he was in Kyiv, he was talking about the types of missiles Russia is using in the 81 missile attacks 
that the Russians launched against the Ukrainians last night. Uh, listen, this is clip five. We're using new missiles, John, because we're hearing about these Kinzhal missiles that Russia is apparently including in this wave of attacks. Kinzhal's, yeah, I mean, so I think there's uh, various reporting here on what they're using. We certainly believe that they use cruise missiles. We certainly think that they use drones, uh, most likely drones that they got from uh, Iran. And we've seen these reports of hypersonics. This would not be the first time that uh, the Ukrainians used hypersonics. Uh, they've done this in the past. It's difficult to understand why you would need a hypersonic missile to hit a, a fixed building so far away uh, when you have other, other means at your disposal. Does Ukraine have anything right now that can knock these Kinzhal missiles, these hypersonic missiles, out of the sky? Hypersonic missiles are generally very, very difficult to counter. Um, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me that, that Ukrainian air defenses uh, are limited in their ability uh, to go after uh, hypersonic missiles. Okay, this is uh, contrasted with uh, sobering news, with uh, at least uh, some good summary news from uh, General James Hacker. He was on MSNBC and uh, General Hacker is the commander of the U.S. Air Force forces in Europe. He's been commander of U.S. Air Forces in Africa and commander of the Allied Air Command uh, headquartered at Ramstein Air Base in Germany. Here is uh, General Hacker on one thing that NATO has going for itself in this confrontation. Uh, listen. U.S. Air Force, what is the role of that branch of our military? Well, it's still going to be deterrent, you know. Um, as you know, our pacing threat and our national defense strategy leans over and looks uh, at, at China. Uh, so we're going to have a big presence still in China. Uh, but we can't obviously forget what's going on in Europe. And uh, what we're going to have to do there and what we're doing is we're working heavily with our allies and partners. And good thing is NATO is close together. Those 30 nations are really close now. Uh, hopefully we'll get up to 32, and those other two bring a lot to the fight that will help out. So we're really working hard with our allies and partners to continue the pressure on Russia. Okay, the extra two he's talking about, of course, are Finland and uh, Sweden. And the only reason they have not yet been admitted to NATO is because one NATO member, it takes all the members to accept a new member, one NATO member, Turkey, has been blocking them. They have elections coming up in Turkey in just a couple of weeks. And the Erdogan regime is in trouble because obviously they did not do a good job with building inspection or preparing for this devastating earthquake, which has killed more than 50,000 people. And uh, the uh, opposition has united around a candidate who is described as colorless, and not charismatic, but someone who is friendly to America and the West and might be a highly preferable uh, return for Turkey to some kind of democratic uh, and, and vote-based government rather than the near dictatorship that uh, Tayyip Recep uh, Erdogan has been conducting over there. Concerning Ukraine... Kevin McCarthy was asked about why he has turned down so far several invitations from President Zelensky to visit Ukraine. Uh, here is the Speaker of the House. This is clip six. 
Okay, the idea of him going to Ukraine uh, was to actually help encourage the Ukrainian people, which is uh, completely necessary if uh, we are going to prevail in this conflict. One of the things that is uh, being reported today is being reported by NBC News that apparently uh, there was an interview with President Trump, a radio interview, where he said, and they have it on tape, that if he were president, he would have allowed uh, a Putin to take parts of Ukraine uh, without that provoking war. And uh, apparently, according to the reports, that aspect of his interview, which he gave last night, was uh, edited out at Trump's request. And the terribly sad thing here is what is the message to China? What is the message to Iran? What is the message to North Korea? What is the message to all of these rogue states if the United States says, okay, right, you can take part of Ukraine, uh, but you can't, uh, not the whole thing. So what part? I mean, are we talking about Crimea? Now, Crimea is complicated because apparently the majority of the population in Crimea is Russian nationals, but not all those Russian nationals want to be part of Putin's Russia. And the idea that this uh, dictator who has shattered every democratic norm, who has murdered opponents, who has authorized the murder of women and children uh, in order to rebuild an old czarist-style Russian empire, the idea that uh, actually we could have appeased him successfully by giving him what he wants, just pieces of Ukraine, uh, that's a problematic position to take, and I'm actually glad that President Trump or the people, cooler heads working around him, got that aspect of the interview taken out, stricken from the record so that most Americans won't hear it or hear about it. Meanwhile, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal under a provocative headline. Uh, the headline was, College Should Be More Like Prison." And uh, written by uh, a professor uh, who says the inmates I teach are serious, disciplined, hard-working students uh, eager to engage with ideas. So Brooke Allen is that professor. And she's teaching inmates, some of them serving very long terms for very violent crimes. Uh, what do those inmates have that makes them better students than the select few who get into s distinguished universities here in civilian life? We'll get to that question and more coming up in This Greatest Nation on God's Green Earth. 